Hello and welcome. You're listening to Requires Improvement, a podcast that aims to critically discuss all aspects of the current UK education system from an unashamedly left-wing perspective. With the support of listeners and guests, we want to find out what's going well and what really requires improvement. My name is Charlie, and in today's episode, my co-host Anu and I interview Lana Crosby about her work in No More Exclusions. Lana Crosby is a Special Educational Needs Coordinator, NEU member, founder of Bristol NME, and all-round amazing activists in a long list of grassroots organisations such as Black Educators Alliance and the Coalition of Anti-Racist Educators. Hope you enjoy. Hello, listeners. Uh, today, we're joined by Lana Crosby, a fantastic and amazing activist in Bristol. Um, Lana, can you introduce yourself? Tell us a bit about you. Hi, I'm Lana Crosby. Um, I am a founder of NME in Bristol and a member of the National NME Movement, uh, which is for No More Exclusions. I am also a teacher and a community activist. Lovely. Okay, so um, we're really excited to have you here today because we, well, we've been uh, involved in and following NME for quite a few years now, I think it is. So um, can you just talk to us about um, what NME, No More Exclusions, is about, um, how you got involved, why, and um, talk about the Bristol context? Okay, so No More Exclusions, um, which is what NME is for, is an abolitionist grassroots movement. Uh, our main goal is the complete abolition of school exclusions in all its forms, so fixed term, isolation booths, ready to learn, permanent exclusions. And we'd like to see a revamped system which is more inclusive for all children um, from all backgrounds. I would say that our unashamed and unapologetic main line is for black children and brown children because they are disproportionately affected in the statistics so we can't we can't move away from the truth the truth is out there for everyone to see and that is that black children and brown children are more likely to be excluded or put into the behavior system than uh, white children Uh, we also know the school to prison pipeline is particularly lucrative for those who invest in it and we want to stop our young people getting onto that pipeline through the school systems. Um, We are also looking at, I would say, a short, medium and long-term plan. So we'd like to change policy, and that requires a longer-term approach. Uh, We would like to see the abolition of alternative learning provisions. Uh, Every child should be able to be educated in in a school, a mainstream school, but that school obviously needs to be resourced and supported, but it shouldn't require a student to be excluded or removed in order for them to succeed. Um, and we are looking for a thriving community, not a surviving community, which is what we feel is what we're faced with. And as an educator of well, roughly about 20 years, I've seen so many young people and families affected by these pervasive and personal and wholly inappropriate and at times illegal steps to remove children from the school system and then these children then invariably find themselves in situations which can be dangerous and worst case scenario can result in death um, if they are involved in serious sort of uh, crime um, and exposed to people who are taking disadvantage of them Um, they can also be 
put onto that school to prison pipeline very quickly because they are over policed, under supported, unseen, but overseen when it comes to things like stop and search. So the links with the criminal justice system are really clear. And our job is to abolish that. We want to just reimagine it, start from scratch. Um, and lots of people, you know, lots of objectors who I've spoken to who say, well, what about the child who throws a table across the room, you know, or is so naughty that they are, you know, what about the other 29 kids in the classroom sort of thing? And I think my response has always been the same, you know, exclusions are not a behaviour intervention. And that's what they're being used as a way to intervene and support behaviour in a school. And we don't need them. We've not always had them in the same way that someone says, oh, but we have to have them. If we don't have exclusions, it means we have to keep these really naughty kids. And even the labelling of naughty, um, which is a, a bugbear for me, we have to keep them in the classroom. And that affects the teaching, it affects the learning for other students. And I have to say, but what about caning? How do you feel about children being caned or children being hit um, as they used to be? And so, oh, God, no, you can't have that. And so, but don't we have to have caning? You know, up to 50, 60 years ago, wasn't caning something that actually did happen? Everyone assumed it was the way forward. That's what you did. You got in trouble, you got caned, or, you know, you got sort of lines and all those things. So we don't need it. It doesn't have to happen. It's just become a rhetoric that we've all compl been complicit in as a system. I myself have also been complicit in. And I think what opened my eyes a long time ago was seeing the impact that these kind of really draconian behaviour systems were having on young people, and then particularly young black children. Um, and I would say it was, at the time, it was particularly boys, but actually there's, really, there's a lot of growing research now to show that girls are also being disenfranchised within the school system. They're over-sexualised, they're treated as adults when actually they're young girls. You know, boys are pathologised, they're treated as men. When they're not, they're boys. Um, you know, and we're we're not allowing them to make mistakes. We're not allowing them to, I guess, grow. And if a child makes a mistake or a young person makes a mistake, you, you show them the mistake, you talk them through it, and you give them another opportunity to get it right. And I think what's happening largely in some of the schools that I've been around is these zero tolerance policies and meaning that that's not even a possibility. So we've got young children now who are becoming risk aversive they're becoming stressed, they're becoming panicked, and then they are making mistakes because they know they know that no matter what happens, they're not gonna be they're not gonna be believed, they're not gonna be spoken to, they're not gonna it's not gonna be rational what happens. Um, and I've dealt with cases from young children being excluded for having um, I'd say weaves and plaits which have specific colours or threads through them to make them look really pretty and beautiful because it doesn't fit school uniform policy. I've seen children removed from school because the staff member said, I felt really un I felt really threatened and I felt he was really aggressive because the, the black boy that I'm thinking of in particular is quite a tall lad and he stood up when the teacher spoke to him and as she was a smaller woman, she said she felt threatened and intimidated. He did nothing. He didn't go towards her. He didn't step in her face. But it's that sort of unjustified zero tolerance that is then affecting long-term our children. So myself and, at the time, it was well over 100 people had joined the No More Exclusions, which was a national um, group that was set up in London. And I met one of the co-founders at a TUC conference where I was speaking on the Windrush campaign. And we just sort of sat and talked about 
how we were feeling and what our frustrations were and realised we had a, a joint vision, if you like, of what what should be happening and what we just couldn't put up with anymore, you know? And it's that thing of, you know, people say you need to accept the things you cannot change. And I thought, no, I've got to change the things I cannot accept. You know, I've, I've got to the point now, which was an Angela Davis quote, I've got to the point where I can't just sit by and watch it anymore. So we, you know, I joined the group. There was lots of work going on. And then I thought something's not happening in Bristol. And Bristol is currently, I think, the sixth or seventh highest in the country for fixed term exclusions. Our permanent exclusions are quite low because we use something called managed moves where we shift children around the different schools. So they don't technically get excluded, but they are they're just pawns. You know, they're just moved around into the different academies for anywhere from, I'd say, about two to 12 weeks. And then if if that's okay then they stay at the new school. Um, It's sold to the parents as a fresh start, a new start. You know, it's a sports specialist academy. So they'll have lots of fun there. It's it's your average academy. It's nothing specialist about it. It's just average. Um, And I just felt that in Bristol, we were starting to see a real problem. So I just gathered the information that I needed to start this movement, really. Um, And that was in July... 2019 no August I beg your pardon 2019 I started gathering the evidence and the information I spoke to the council and got some people on board and then in September I did a a sort of launch meeting if you like Um, and then it's kind of gone on from there really just putting things out there getting it into the consciousness of people that exclusions is and all forms even social exclusions you know these kids are once they leave school as in they're thrown out of school, they're also the shame of being excluded from school and how that makes them feel. You know, everybody knows what's happened. They're being spoken about. They're being potentially teased, made fun of, so on and so forth. And it's that thing of, if we're so concerned about young people and we're so concerned about mental health and anxiety, why are we causing it? Why are we contributing so openly to it? Um... And in worst case scenarios, we were seeing quite a lot of uh, youth violence in Bristol as well. So the idea was for me to try to, I guess, subvert that somehow and start to try and change the narrative around it. And that's kind of where we're at now. I mean, it has chopped and changed over time because of the because of pandemic and COVID, but um, we're still going. Um, there's quite a... Oh, it's amazing introduction to what enemy does and there's a lot in there um i was thinking about uh actually something that popped into my mind was um a conversation i had with a student when i was still teaching in secondary he was he was on the brink of being excluded so he was i taught him in in my english class and i absolutely loved him he was he was such a, a lovely um young man really tried really tried hard um had had some sort of um i think undiagnosed learning uh, difficulty but used to find himself in and out of um our isolation room um and i have to say that i didn't i didn't isolate him i i i tried to keep i was really actually in terms of what the school felt was a good teacher of discipline, I don't think I was a very good one because I didn't feel very comfortable putting kids into isolation. Um, so, but I do remember that myself and the and the sort of kind of deputy of safeguarding have a conversation with him, 
just because we were really worried about him and we just wanted to find out what was wrong because there was something wrong. Um, And we just sort of sat with him, spoke to him for about 45 minutes and really broke through his defences. And we just said, look, what's the one thing we could do to help you sort of get to school on time, stay in school? And he just said... I'll never forget this. And I think me and my colleague almost burst into tears, although we didn't. Um, He just said, sometimes I don't have breakfast in the morning. I'm just quite hungry. And then we knew his mum wasn't coping very well at home. So he didn't really have someone to wake him up in the morning, etc. And we just looked at each other, me and my colleague, and we're just sort of like, you know, this young black boy who actually, you know, was was that child that you talked about where other teachers might have found him aggressive and a little bit intimidating, although he was was bloody tiny. But, um, you know, he just he could get angry and he could just give you the big two fingers sometimes. And um, but he just sort of became this little boy that said I'm hungry in the morning and that's Um, the boy who is getting into trouble at school it's the little boy who's hungry and I wondered yeah how much how much of that is is something that you that you see and understand as part of this picture as well because it is it is disproportionately affecting you know black and brown and traveler kids this the exclusions but um but also there's there's hunger isn't there and there's like there's kind of temporary housing and stuff how much of that is something that you've dealt with uh huge amounts if I'm honest I mean I think it cannot be overstated or underplayed how much poverty and trauma and unmet needs are three of probably the biggest determining factors in children's behavior and as educators I don't feel that we are educated enough on those three factors and those are the three that are pretty pervasive and when I'm dealing with a young person who's potentially on the brink of being excluded or I'm getting you know emails asking me for advice on what they should do next when you read through some of what they put and they really pour their heart out because they're they're often looking at you as you're my only hope (laughs) you know you're my last chance because I just don't know what else to do And that's another thing, parents not knowing their rights and not knowing what to do in these situations. Um, I think those three factors are massive and particularly the unmet need. So as a trained Senko, I can see when when somebody has an unmet need. Um, Coming from a psychology background, I understand trauma. So whenever I'm approaching a child, I always get told in my work life more so than anywhere else. Oh my goodness, you know, that's just so amazing. How do you know that? And I said, because I take time to listen and I take time to observe. And then I take time to try to understand the perspective of that young person and decenter myself and use my positionality as a teacher in a positive way. You know, we spend six hours a day, 39 weeks a year with these kids. There's no doubt we have an impact. And if we don't use our positionality in a positive way and we use it as a platform to to dish out abuse, if you like, you know, and unequal amounts of power, that power relationship is just, it's something that can be so misused. And I see that a lot. So when you're talking about that young man, my my gut starts to sort of turn a little bit when I think about the hunger, because those zero tolerance policies will say, I don't care how hungry you are. You've not sat down when I've told you to, you know, you need to leave the room. Well, maybe he's not sat down because he's so hungry. Maybe he's in pain. You know, maybe he cannot concentrate because he's feeling 
ill. Maybe he's feeling dizzy. You know, there's so many other things. Or maybe he's just angry about how crap life is for him right now. Has anybody took the time to ask this kid what's going on? And we don't, you know, we don't stop and ask those really important questions. And if we don't understand the impact of trauma, what we do is we start to continue to be complicit in a system which enforces trauma on these children. Um, And it carries on for years. I mean, from year, I've dealt with a child as young as year, I think it's year one, so was I like five? All the way up to 16 and 17 year old kids. And I mean, it's just, there's no, there's no way of getting away from the true facts of that, that exclusions are just another way to abuse children, in my opinion. Um, And I know there will be lots of dissenters who will say, you know, we need to have a way to manage behaviour. And yes, you're right. But managing behaviour is what we need to do, not punish. And that's what we're continuing. So, you, you know, you're punishing that child for being hungry or you're punishing that child for having an unmet need. That's our job. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And if we don't get our job right, it's not right to punish that kid for feeling upset about not getting our, our jobs right. And that's as parents as well. You know, we need to let parents know what their rights are too. Not enough parents challenge the system because they don't know, because they're not supposed to know, because then that makes it easier to dish out this punishment. Um, so you, you've talked a little bit or touched on it, and I just thought we'd we'd unpick and find out a bit more about that. So in what ways do you um, support children? Do you um, usually find that they come to no more exclusions, or how do you how do you find people that you're supporting, and, and how does how's the campaign going on a more wide um, sort of public education note? And getting it out there. I think from a no more exclusions point of view, um, on our websites and our in sort of Instagrams and Twitter and so on, you get lots of people coming through. Can I can I ask you some questions or I've got a case, can I send it through? What do you think? So there's a lot of those come through. Um through Bristol, often what it happens is working with other organizations, so like Sari, for example, they've sent quite a few few people through and said is there any advice you could offer? So it's more of a consultancy more so than anything else um, because they don't they don't always have the door open to go into the schools. Whereas as a teacher, as somebody who has worked in leadership and somebody who, as the SENCO, also has the uh, links with the local authorities as well, I think they find that quite useful. So um, a lot of my work often comes through word of mouth at the moment um, and through organisations like SARI. Um, there are some other organisations as well, uh, local ones that are wanting to do sort of conflict resolution in schools. And they've sort of contacted me and said, we'd really like your support. We'd really like you to get involved in this if you can, uh, because, yeah, basically we've heard about what you guys do and we think it's amazing. And, we, you know, we really want to change the narrative with you. We don't want it to do it without you. Um, so, yeah, that's how that's happening at the moment. Um, and for, off the back of some of the pieces that have been done, so there was an article in The Cable written on exclusions. That was by Bristol Enemy. There's um, some radio pieces with Ujima Radio. Um, there's also, I'm trying to think what else we've done recently. Oh, got some funding from Bristol Redistro in order to support um, our activity and our work. Because, you know, unfortunately, yes, we I work for free, but things still need to be paid for and things still need to be financed. So that's been a real massive support to get that funding through as well. Um, And through those connections and sort of local media, I think the name is out there now and 
inextricably <laughs> I'm linked to that name so people will then come and find me and that's what I need that's what I want people to do I just yeah so um I just wondered how given sort of your you know your kind of feelings and your ideas about how we how we should be navigating behavior in schools how do you how do you do that in the current system because the current system doesn't think the way that you or we think or lots of us think um so how are you able to do that it started off with a lot of shouting and foot stamping which didn't really get me too far um and it's now become more of a discussion so what i have done recently is i have spoken to um a large multi-academy trust in bristol and done a session on no more exclusions and within that session i explained the position on exclusions and what we really meant because i think there's a common misnomer out there that because we're abolitionists we're saying get rid of it and then that's it and obviously you know that's not what we're saying what we're saying is yes that's where we want to move towards but simultaneously building a system whereby it's supportive and nurturing and obviously there will always be um behavior codes if you like that young people are expected to follow but the penalizing when you don't follow has to change so i think i've my role has been to almost re-educate people on what we mean by no more exclusions because i think in the present there's lots of people who think it just means just let them run wild you know we don't say run wild we're not saying that at all um, that would be totally unmanageable but what we're saying is be fair be equitable be equal equal in your treatment of these young people see these young people see their families see the needs see the trauma you know see the the pain and work with them that way so i guess doing um anti-racist work has helped because it's allowed me to go in and fill those spaces where that message can go in so i go in and i for example in a school recently i've gone in and done some anti-racist work and whilst i was there i talked to the head teacher about behavior strategies and then helped then i got given the go ahead to work with the vice principal i think it was who is the person who's in charge of behavior and as it stands that school has a ready to learn policy so i think it's two strikes and you're into ready to learn for the day and then you have a detention yeah. at the end of the day um so they miss effectively 24 hours of school and then they have a detention um and what that has now changed to after working with me which i'm really happy with at the moment is they will be removed from the classroom if their behavior is unmanageable at that moment they go and have a cooling off period if you like and then they get re-entered back into the classroom within the next lesson there's no detention at the end of the school um detentions are gone and it's a phone call home to kind of talk about what's happened and to try to have this kind of wrap around approach if you like to the child's care um i did that in um i think it was last year actually yeah the start of the last academic year and i've spoken to that head probably about a month ago and she said it's going really well um they're having a lot less instances they're having a lot more SEMH which is social emotional mental health training within the schools and um she's finding that behavior has really improved so i guess to answer your question it's finding people who are prepared to listen to what i'm actually trying to say and not make assumptions about us 
prepare to to attempt to meet me halfway because I can understand that if we just said fine stop everything and we didn't have any alternatives that would not be an appropriate way forward either so I just presented some basic ways forward on how to manage behavior they were prepared to trial it thankfully it's worked and that's the way forward and hopefully that person will then go to their head teacher conferences talk about that then say this is who we worked with this has really helped not everyone's on board you know um, there are some large mats who just have their own way of doing things and they're very risk aversive they see this as a risk and they see this as you know what will the church elders say if this gets out um, and that's a work in progress uh, but it is about trying to get a seat at the table to just talk educate people get them to understand what we really mean and not make those assumptions definitely oh that's really cool so um i think we touched on a little bit but i thought i'd um ask a bit more about some of the allied organizations uh, you've been working with uh, particularly one we haven't i think said about before which was care so could you tell us a bit about um care and any other um, particularly significant yeah. Care is a, a sort of sister group, if you like, of Enemy. Um, it's a coalition of um, anti-racist educators and it's powered by Enemy. So lots of the Enemy members are also care members. And that is about anti-racism in general, but it's also about all different types of inequality. So there's lots of work that goes on around the LGBTQI. There's a lot of work that goes on around um, the traveller movement. There's a lot of work that goes on around um, uh, the policing, you know, and sort of a, as a social justice approach. So there's quite a lot that goes on in there. And CARE and BEA, which is Black Educators Alliance, um, that's a group of amazing black educators who, I guess, were have got to where I got to maybe about a year ago and thought I've had enough of just doing this mainstream kind of work it's just it's not happening so it's it's broken off and become its own group um and black educators alliance is also about anti-racism um and it's particularly and it's run by all black educators um they are aligned with the values of enemy they're aligned with the values of care they are also have affiliations to other groups um there are also other groups like kids of color um up in manchester who've done like amazing work about policing in schools or to remove police from schools. Um, no, Stop and Search, they did an amazing campaign on Stop and Search and produced massive amounts of literature and support for um, young people so that they could have almost, uh, my sons have it actually, like little credit cards that can go into their wallets and stuff, which show them these are the things you can do in the event of a Stop and Search. This is what you can ask. This is This is the way forward. Um, and they've all, you know, all of these groups are working together to, and they're all grassroots movements, you know, they're not um, affiliated necessarily by any specific uh, campaigns. They've made their own campaigns. They've done their own thing. These are people from the community who are rising up against this sort of rising tide, if you like, of um, this sort of, well, for want of a better term, this Tory government, should I say, let's just leave it there for a second. Um, and the work that's gone on there has been brilliant and CARE and BEA in particular have recently launched a petition and a legal challenge against the PSHE um, guidance that have come out from the DFE, which I'm sure you're both aware of. Um, and that is also becoming quite successful and gaining lots of support from 
news outlets like the New Statesman, I think it was, and a new socialist, I can't remember now. There's some there's some information in The Guardian, The Independent ran something. Um, there's been lots of radio, so whether it's in London, whether it's in Bristol, whether it's Wolverhampton, I mean, it's it's kind of gone nationwide, this one. Um, and it's been, yeah, it's been a really, it's been a tough one because this is a particularly tough one to tackle, but it was a necessary move. So we should probably, do you think we need to explain a little bit about this PSHE guidance for people that don't, yeah, don't really know about it and the issues? Yeah, sure. So PSHE, which is um, taught in schools from, gosh, I think, I'm not a primary specialist, but I suspect there's some elements of it in primary, um, quite low, like Key Stage 1 all the way up to Key Stage 5. And they all have different strands, so, you know, sexual health, mental health, um, so on and so forth, personal health. And this particular piece of guidance that came out recently basically said that you cannot have, uh, you cannot teach anti-establishment, you cannot have teachings and materials from what could be considered extreme groups. So we're talking maybe Black Lives Matters, Extinction Rebellion would be another one off the top of my head. Um, and they, it used language such as, you know, we cannot teach things that that encourage victim narratives. I just, that for me, I just felt was unhelpful. I thought it was bullish. It's a form of labelling um, that carries with it a stigma. You know, this idea that if you are a black or brown person and you are teaching your class or your group of children about some of the inequities and the inequalities experienced by people who are non-white, that in some way you are encouraging a victim narrative and the stigma that that carries. Um, and it's really it's a real detriment to sort of black and brown families, if you like. Um, it also said that you cannot you cannot teach unsubstantiated accusations against institutions. So for me, that was just a form of being silenced. So we're not allowed to say anything that would be anti-establishment, if you like, or unsubstantiated. So my question is, I can't prove, for example, that God exists, but I still teach religion. What the hell? You know, so I can't, I can't teach about racism because what I cannot prove it exists or that it happens. I mean, it's just the most ridiculous piece of writing ever. Um, it says that we should have a patriotic curriculum. I mean, I think that was something that was pushed through by Donald Trump in America and it's following through over here in the UK. And I just think a patriotic curriculum. What, for who? You know, I just sort of, yeah. I, I sit back and I think, uh, who does that serve? I mean, in, essentially, what it for me, it serves a white supremacist curriculum. You know, keep that going. Silence the black and brown people call them, allow people to see them as victims, that victim narrative. They're all going around talking about all these unsubstantiated accusations and it's just not bloody true. It's just wrong. And in relation to our sort of social justice comrades, if you like, there's Extinction Rebellion, LGBTQIA. I mean, none of these groups who are fighting for real causes are going to be able to use resources um, mm. from associated organisations to support students who want to know more about the world that they're about to live in. And these are tomorrow's voters, you know, these are tomorrow's adults who are going to make a difference. So, you know, who are they going to assault next with this particular piece of legislation? And I think it's really important that we say the word guidance, but as I read it further, and they snuck this in in the back door, if you like, what it actually says is 
we expect all schools to comply. And this will be part of the Ofsted framework with this will be, you know, inspected. So it's not guidance, it's a rule. So therefore, I have to do it. So I'm not even getting any kind of flexibility around this at all. So we just felt that it was really important that we have to say something, we have to do something. I mean, you've got groups, I think it was called um, Common Sense UK, which is a... Um, someone's Twitter handle saying, right, that's it. You know, it's a far right Twitter group. That's it. We can, um, you know, you can't teach Black Lives Matters. We can't teach white privilege. You can't teach white fragility. It's now illegal. I mean, they're literally rubbing their hands with glee at this piece of legislation, which is supporting essentially a far right way of teaching in this country. And I think CARE and BEA just felt, as a member of BEA and as a member of CARE, I definitely felt this, that I know it sounds really cheesy, but as the saying sort of goes, you know, if not now, when? And if not us, who? You know, somebody has to stand up and say something and we have to do it soon. We cannot let this pass by because if we let this one through and we say nothing, what else will be pushed through? So the legal challenge um, was presented by the solicitors. Uh, To my knowledge, because things are moving quite quickly, we then put together a crowdfund page. We were hoping to get maybe five, six thousand pounds to help support. I think it's now up to about 20,000, which is really amazing. Um, And we have sent out our petition and our challenge through the solicitors. The the response back has been, we don't really need to contact you if we want to put this guidance out there. So if you want to go ahead with your challenge, you can. So that's kind of where we're at at the moment. And I hope that people will get on board and, you know, I hope that we will get more support because this is going to be for all children, not just black and brown children, but all children. Yeah, I mean, it's really a disgustingly dangerous turn at the moment, doesn't it? It feels like and these sort of couching it in in the kind of language of common sense is quite a an age-old way of trying to normalise like what is actually quite a right-wing project. So I think, um, yeah, the, the crowd justice campaign, is, I think, is a really important one for us to get out there as well. Uh, but I think we can put the links in, in that to that um, campaign in, in the podcast as well. But, um, yeah, so it's a really important challenge. Um, I just thought I'd talk about um, other, well, given this kind of like turn to try and curb movements like enemy that are actually, you know, looking for, for more equitable classrooms and uh, societies. Um, do you, there, there've been attacks against enemy recently in the, in the media. Do you think, do you see that as part of this kind of turn to try and curb um, these movements and can you just tell us a little bit about that and what enemy's response has been oh yeah for sure i mean i come i guess with any agitation comes people wanting to batten down the hatches and yeah. uh you know we're not easy we do agitate we do talk very loudly about the things that upset us and those public comments they've just been so disparaging they've been hurtful misinformed actually wrong that's what I would say, absolutely wrong. So what, what's happened recently is um, a known far-right supporter in the media, um, on I think it was on Twitter initially, 
put out, he, he took some information from the enemy website and put out that we are, I guess, essentially rapist sympathizers. And what we were saying was that if a child had been involved in a sexual assault of a teacher or another pupil, I can't quite remember the full statement if I'm being absolutely honest, because I just thought I'm not listening, I'm not giving this airtime. Um, but essentially saying that we we support those young people. If they've sexually assaulted someone, we're saying that they should remain in the classroom and under no circumstances should they be excluded. Um, and went onto our website, took some information, skewed it in a completely different way. And then that just sort of picked up traction over that sort of few days um, with lots of people saying, this is disgusting, this is ridiculous, you know, what are they doing? This is dangerous. They call themselves educators. You know, it was a real vile attack and it was really full on. Um, and unfortunately, where we thought we might get support, we didn't um, from some some larger organisations who should be supporting educators chose to distance themselves from that instead. And I guess that's, you know, par for the course, because I think when you get onto dangerous ground where you need to be brave, that's when, you know, you look around and all these people are supposed to be shoulder to shoulder to you with you are also sort of at the back holding your coat, shall we say, you know, right at the back. Um, and this then turned into, I would say, almost a cyber attack because then what happened next was our website went down. And right. yeah, it just, it, it, it wasn't working and we just didn't know what was going on. Um, we managed to get it sorted and it's back up and it's thriving. But they've taken our frequently asked questions document and just edited it, if you like, just took bits from it to make it look that this is what we were saying when we weren't. And I can go on record now as saying none of us are saying that a victim of sexual assault should have to share the same space as the person or the perpetrator of that assault. But I also want to say we would be foolish if we were to think that this is not happening in everyday society. You know, the amount of women and men who have been the victims of sexual assault are still having to share space with people who are then walking free from jail or walking free from a charge. Um, and also, uh, what I want to also say quite publicly as well is it accounts for less than 1% of exclusions in schools. And I'm not saying that that's, that's acceptable, but what I'm saying is it's such a small minority of the reasons why young people are excluded. And they took this very minute um, percentage and completely ignored the persistent disruptive behaviour, which is the largest category for why people are excluded from schools. And they've changed it to that's what we're about. You know, we are about keeping uh, these uh, perpetrators of sexual assault in a school with their victims. We're showing no support for the victims. And even the language, you know, victims, perpetrator, I mean, it was just highly offensive because that's not what we're saying at all. And I, I would stress anybody who is unsure should go onto our website and read about us. And then please do ask your critical questions, but do not assume that what you've heard is correct because it is not correct. But we also have to be very mindful. We are sharing spaces with all types of people. And we also have to be aware that with these, with these um, statistics, sexual assault accounts for a very, very small minority of the exclusions. And I, I personally was affronted by the accusation because there was also something around race and sexual assault being put into the same sentence. So this idea that young black boys are assaulting women or girls. Um, 
I just, I, I personally find that offensive because that's just not true. And it's part of that old trope that goes out about men, you know, black men being sort of sexually aggressive. Um, and again, we're not talking about bloody men. We're talking about children. We are talking about yeah. kids. We're not talking about grown adults here. Um, and I think the very few cases where there has been a potential assault or a charge, they're far and few between. You could probably barely find any of the cases. And in ones that I can think of, the perpetrators were white. So, you know, take that, is what I would say to that. I just, this sort of thing really irks me and it really gets me upset because it's such a misrepresentation of the truth. And it does nothing oh, to support yeah. our young people and our families. You know, these accusations hurt families. Mud sticks. Once it's out there, you know, you're labelled. And as I said, those those labels turn into that stigma you know that you can't shake off and these young people are starting their lives and all they're starting is a life full of discrimination and assaults and this is coming from grown adults who should know better they call themselves educators and we've recently just done a um talk a workshop at the black educators conference last week um entitled well i entitled it exclusions pervasive permanent and personal like the three p's because they are so pervasive and they are often a permanent assault on that young person because of the label and it's so personal because of the shame so to think that you've got adults out there saying that we as educators and myself as a black female I am advocating sexual assault I found that personally offensive because I absolutely wouldn't and I, I don't know of anybody that does so those attacks are coming thick and fast um, I think it's because we're growing in power I think it's because we are not moving. Uh, we are here, we're permanent, we're not going anywhere. I think our voices are getting louder. I think our platform is getting bigger. I think that there is a real fear that we're agitating and changing the status quo. And when we do that, the people who benefit from the status quo will do anything they can to hold on to it because power never concedes power, does it? So we are in a situation where we know we are fighting for our reputation and some of us are fighting for our lives because these, you know, these assaults, they take a real mental toll on you as well and an emotional one. So it's been a really trying couple of weeks, but we have, you know, we have chosen not to do anything publicly to stir it uh, because we didn't feel that that was going to be helpful because it would be too reactionary. But we have produced a very short statement which was um, published in the TES of the week that it happened and that's the statement that we're sticking with and if anybody wants to find it um i can give you i can get you a link to that if you want to have a look at it and that's the statement and if you want to contact us please do but we're not doing anything else because we just don't feel that it's helping we feel in fact it's just engaging in really unhealthy discussions around something that we've already justified with our statement what i thought of when i saw and um, heard about the attacks on enemy um and what everyone was saying it made me think of the two times as a primary school teacher um i've actually known of and i, I wasn't teaching the school at the time but i um um i had a close friend who dis did disclose to me that like you know didn't say the name to the children but said that that there were these things really um stressing her out at the school 
um, because two things happened in quick succession. Um, There was a sexual assault in year four with um, two actual girls who attacked another girl. And then around some of the time, I think a a year six boy attacking another year six boy um, sexually. And in both of those cases, um, the children didn't actually get excluded. And actually that did cause a lot of trauma for... um, I think the victims, especially in the, in the year six class. So mm-hmm. not only is that already not happening, like it's not automatic exclusion, um, but also all of the, the perpetrators of these attacks could have benefited so much in a, in a sort of a no more exclusions world. Um, they would have already been supported because they had done so many things that were crying out for help. Like in the years leading up to those points mm-hmm. so I, I almost feel like you know when I think oh would no more exclusions have come in in those situations and, and change things so that there wasn't consequences for the attackers well no for a start um, because because they didn't get excluded anyway but also if no more exclusions um, had been called upon um, for these children way early on that it, it it's so it was so unlikely to me that it would have led to those points because these are children who'd clearly experienced so much trauma Mm-hmm. And that doesn't excuse the behaviour like that. It doesn't excuse what happened. But equally, like, I, yeah, I do find it so hard to believe that it, it would have got there. Like, things would have been put in place to support those children before. I, I, I believe in so many cases um, to stop those things from happening in the first place. And that, that was my sort of thoughts on it when I first saw it. And everything you said, I think, yeah. I think trauma, trauma inflicts trauma, you know. And if it if it goes unsupported in terms of getting the support that you need if it goes un, if it if it's missed in so many ways as you were saying earlier about the young boy who's hungry you know all again it just it's always coming back to these same things isn't it it's always coming back to trauma it comes back to inequities like poverty you know it these it's not rocket science what we're talking about here we're talking about changing society for the better and we're talking about re-education so nobody is expecting those young people who've inflicted trauma on, on each other no one's saying that it should just be a case of you shouldn't exclude them and just you know you keep calm and carry on that's absolutely not what we're saying what what we would say is those young people need some sort of restorative process obviously if possible whether it's within each other between each other or whether it's actually individually but they need support for what got you there in the first place why would young children this age be even thinking about that sort of stuff uh, where, where is this coming from? Like, what's going on at home? And it would be the prevention rather than the cure. And you know, we need to make sure that what we have in schools. I'm really passionate about this. Is trauma informed, but not trauma led practices, because we can't go in and just assume everything is about trauma, because then that would be wrong as well. But we need to be more informed, and I just don't think that we are. And I, I really worry about young teachers coming through who are just, they're not getting anti-racist training on their PGCEs and, you know, initial teacher training programs. They're not getting the trauma training and they are coming into classrooms full of these, you know, potentially 30 kids from different backgrounds with different particular stresses and strains in their environments that then present themselves in behaviours and they're really ill-equipped to deal with it, you know, and that's what's causing the problems. And what we're saying is we need to get in and do something about that now because the the victims, if you like to use that word of that, tend to be the marginalised groups. And those marginalised groups tend to be your black and brown children, your traveller children, you know, your children on the lower, you know, the thin end of the wedge when it comes to finances and support at home. Um, 
and also the parents. SEND kids. Yeah, your SEND kids. All yeah. of, you know, all the. I don't. I, I hesitate to say it, but all your sort of usual suspects, if you like, you know, all those people who you just know, it's already going to be a, a pretty crap deal for them anyway. So when you have these policies and procedures in place, you're just doubling down on what's already being experienced by both the child and the families by extension, because, you know, they take that home and goodness knows what's happening to some of these kids outside of school because of the stress of what's going on in school. You know, parents are getting phone calls every day and they're just like, I can't do another phone call. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. They get stressed. They might be doing four jobs to try and keep a roof over that child's head. You know, it's, I don't, I, I struggle to understand why we have a a government, if you like, and then all the local authorities just following suit like bloody minions, not understanding that it needs a more bespoke approach and it needs to drill down to some of these issues. Because if you want better results, if you want functioning members of society when they're older, you have to get in early and try to do prevention over cure, but at the very least support if you can't do the prevention. And I don't understand why that's such a problem. We'd rather throw our money into building more prisons than trying to stop people going into prison. Uh, it's just, for me, it just makes no sense. You know, for my lot, the way I sort of think logically, it just feels a bit arse backwards, if you like. I don't think it feels like that to just you either. Um, I saw this great tweet, actually. It was just really succinct really precise and it was like basically we've got to address like maslow's hierarchy of needs before we even get to bloom's taxonomy it was kind of using the two classic tropes that you have to go through in inset day like bloom use your bloom's taxonomy in classroom and it was sort of like you know we've got it upside down or us backwards or whatever however beautifully you put it um but yeah i just thought that was a really a really nice way of of encapsulating the problem um and i think everything you've spoken about also goes back to that kind of really nice line that you well the really nice way that you put it as well that exclusions aren't a behavior intervention you know like and i wonder if these attacks on enemy and the general attacks from the right that we've seen are just a failure to acknowledge that the the system itself is the problem it's not it's not all the kind of salve and the the plasters we put on the system you know so like i think like you were saying like you know enemy isn't about just getting rid of exclusions and letting everything like run wild it is about fundamentally changing the way that we approach education the way that we approach kind of nurture learning and everything so it's not an easy fix you know enemy isn't about tomorrow it's about the next 5 10 15 years and it's going to take you know that long for for people to get on board and also for these things to change um, um yeah i mean we're definitely about legacy building and what's really important to us what's really at the heart i think of what we do is 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 youth voice because I didn't experience an exclusion as a as a child um I I feel I I think I could say I've definitely experienced social exclusion as a teacher you know because of my views and and who I am and the fact that some oh you're just so aggressive Lana and I just think I'm very assertive and um, if that's a problem like get out of my space I guess so that could be seen as aggressive (laughs) to some um so I've definitely been I've definitely experienced it as an adult um because people think of exclusions they just think we're talking about 
out of school. We're also talking about the way you're excluded in terms of groups within the school, you know, how these systems allow groups to maintain that sort of, you can't be part of our group or, you know, you're so different, you know, that sort of, it's not bullying, but it's that sort of bullish way of going about getting what you want. Um, what really centres us is the fact that there's no hierarchy in the group. You know, there's nobody who's above anybody else. We're all very much, you know, um, on the same level. Um, and we really try to promote youth voice because it's the youth coming through that are experiencing the things that we're trying to fight. And those are the young people who, when you speak to them, oh, my God, they are the most amazing people. Um, uh, one group in particular is called Pupil Power. And these young people, they will blow your mind with how amazing they are. They are, uh, I think, 17, 18 years old, slightly older, some of them. But, oh, I, I mean, just go and look them up. They are absolutely brilliant. And um, Alea, who is one of the main speakers for Pupil Power, when you hear her speak as an 18-year-old, you'll think she's like, you know, 45 you know, she's just got such a mature head on her shoulders and she speaks so eloquently and she's so passionate and she's just an amazing advocate for youth voice. Um, and that's what we try to do because we need them to speak. We need people to hear it from the sort of mouths of babes, if you like. Because it's easy for me, for you, for anyone else to talk about how unjust we think these systems are working within it. But we need to hear it from the students, from the children, from the families, because then I guess it's the emotional impact it has. It really brings it home to you what it actually does to be uh, a sort of experience that, you know, what it is to sort of be immersed in that in that environment where those things are happening to you, where you're being marginalised or you're being excluded or you're being, uh, for want of a better word, I guess you are just being pushed aside because you're just a child. What do you know? And what we do is promote and amplify those voices. And, you know, lots of people say, oh, yeah, you know, you can be the voice for the voiceless. And I, they're not voiceless. They're just voices that are not being listened to. So what we do is amplify those voices. So, yeah, I would say if people are really thinking that we are what the media attacks were saying, go and look at Pupil Power, who we work with. Go and look, go and listen to some of these young people and hear what they're saying, who are powered by enemy to speak, live your truth say your truth, speak truth to power, um, and you'll be blown away and see we are not what people are saying we are. We might be radical in the sense of, for some people, I guess we're a bit rich <laughs> for their blood, but actually, um, I don't think we're radical at all. I think we're just saying what needs to be done. But I can understand if you are very central, it might feel quite a jump to come across to this abolitionist way of thinking. And I think it's that's what people need to go away and think about what does abolition really mean you know we are a you know a root and branch approach we don't just want to break off the branches we want to dig it up and start again and plant something new and i think that really always that sort of view it feels so um overwhelming if you're not somebody who's connected to that level of activism that's where the word radical comes from i think you think wow that's really sort of left that out of left field and you think but it's not. Surely you've got to the point where you're just... You can't take this crap anymore. Surely yeah, you've got to, Yeah, you know? Yeah, you're sick of it. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So with all this in mind, Lana, 
Could you tell us what do you think our educators should take away from this? What should educators be doing, uh, both in their schools and in, in order to support you in your work or support them? And me, I should say, it's not one individual, as you rightly point out. Get read. <laughs> so read about us. Go and find out about us. Um, get on the website. Have a good look, a good hunt through everything. Write down your questions, you know, and then get in contact at no point can I think of any of us who are not happy to answer questions and queries? You know, we want more community involvement. We want community cohesion. And that community isn't just our living community, it's also our working communities, because many of us are teachers as well as other professions. I think, um, you know, if you see something at work and you just think, mm, I'm not sure that's okay, challenge it, please challenge it, please say something. And if you can't say it in the moment, give them an email, you know, have a talk later, but don't just let it go by because you're being complicit. And that's what continues these systems going. Um, I would say if it's to do with NME, please get in contact. You know, I'm always looking for people to support in any way you can, whether that is, as I said, going into school and doing training with teachers. I'm always up for that sort of thing. And even in businesses, it's not just in schools, it's also in businesses to make sure that, you know, young people and professionals within businesses understanding their interactions with other people how their behaviors have an impact on others so it's really about spreading that message far and wide so please just get in touch um, and there's so many sort of training there's talks um I'm trying to think of other things within your actual practice you know think of your positionality as well it's one that i'm really you know, that's for me, that's a really big one because I think we don't think enough about our position. We're almost on autopilot when we're in work at times. And I want people to think much more carefully around their actions, purposefully think about it. You know, the the resources you use, the discussion you have with that student's parent at the end of the day, you know, just think about that. And if you need support, ask for it. And if the school can't provide it, I'm pretty sure we can. And we can work with schools. Um, you know, COVID has been a difficult, um, should I say, it's been a challenge and a barrier to try to overcome, but it hasn't stopped us. It hasn't meant that the work hasn't been continuing. We've all been very active throughout the whole pandemic. And it's been difficult to get out into the community and to do what we might normally do, where we might set up meetings and things like that because of, you know, obvious restrictions. But we're still available via Zoom, via Teams, Google Meets. I mean, there's so many different um, technological platforms that we can use. Get in contact, you know, and see what we can do to support you in school. It might even be that we can support you in developing materials and then you go and do that in your school. You know, it doesn't always have to be maybe bringing someone in. It might just be that you want that forum, that safe space to have that discussion and to understand it a bit more. You might not feel that you understand the situation, whatever that might be, or what's needed. Um, you know, get involved is what I would say. But I do understand that everybody is really tired <laughs> at the moment. So there are lots of different ways. This isn't us. It's a call to arms. I really want people to get involved, but I don't want anybody to feel that that means it's going to be full on. So it's however little, however much you feel that you can support the message, it will definitely be uh, gratefully received. I'm just going to... I'm going to add to that. Um, 
uh, you could, if you're a new young educator, you could get in touch with us as well because we are um, very much supportive of Enemy and the various anti-racist um, actions and campaigns that are going on at the moment. So, yeah, if you're a young, young educator, yeah, requires improvement. NEU, Bristol and South West Young young educators Facebook page as well. So yeah, we I can, would also add yeah, to that can. as well that I'm going to be doing some work with the Bristol NEU branch and the South Gloss branch. So if you are a young educator, do get involved. Come along to the meetings. You know, maybe you might just want to listen a couple of times so you can think about how you might want to contribute. But you know, we the more the better. You know, the more people bang in the drum, the louder the message will be. Absolutely. Well. I think that's a really good moment to finish on. Uh, thank you so much, Lana. It's been always a pleasure. Uh, I always find myself yeah, entranced by the things you say and the way that you're able to really hit all the all the points um, so succinctly. It's It's been incredible. So thank you so much. Thank you, Barbara. Um, that's us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Requires Improvement. Don't forget, you can find us on Twitter at requirespod. So please do follow us and let us know what you think. And if you're able to rate us and share us, we're available to listen to on all your typical podcast hosts like SoundCloud, Spotify and iTunes. Catch you soon.